I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. These sessions are brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension, as well as generous support from the Minnesota Farm Families through the Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council, as well as the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. So we're glad you could join us for today's session on our agronomy updates and kind of what to expect for, you know, trying to predict yield and what might be happening um, when we look at what to expect for when it comes to harvest time here. And my name is Anthony Hansen. I'm a regional extension educator in integrated pest management based out of Morris. And today we welcome both Dr. Jeff Coulter and Dr. Seth Nave, our um, University of Minnesota extension agronomists in both corn and soybeans. So with that, I think I will turn it over to Jeff to start off. We're gonna talk about corn first. I know you have to leave a little bit earlier. And then we will talk to Seth a little bit uh, later here too. So uh, if anyone has questions specific to corn, please get those into the um, Q&A box and we'll go ahead from there. All right, so Jeff, let's just start off. Um, how are things looking overall for corn across the state so far in terms of just overall status of crop um, development and growth stages? Yeah, thanks, Anthony. Well, uh, it's turned around, it's looking looking better. Um, I would say in general, it's quite variable across the state. We got areas that have had uh, somewhat timely rainfall and we have areas that are excessively dry um, up until recently. And um, so we did lose a fair number of kernels at the tips of the ears around pollination. It was quite warm and dry during around pollination and afterwards. So we had some kernel abortion or drying out of kernels near the tips of the ears. Um, but uh, recently we've picked up these rains and that has started to help us. Um, right now we're at the late milk to early dough stage for corn and corn can continue to lose kernels through the end of the milk stage if there's stressful conditions. But after that, then the kernel number is set. So, um, we're, we're basically at the point now where the corn is transitioning into the main grain filling period. Um, so sufficient moisture will help that grain filling period and result in bigger kernels and drier conditions will just uh, put stress on the crop and result in, in smaller kernels, but not, not change the number of kernels per ear uh, basically from this point onward. Yeah, I think that's a good point when you talk about kernel abortion. I've heard a lot of folks talking about that lately where they've gone out into their fields earlier around pollination and thought they had a decent sized uh, cob out there. And a lot of folks definitely noticing that uh, abortion or dieback on the tip there. Uh, so that kind of gets into one of the main questions people have this time of year. It's how do we actually go about estimating yield in corn, uh, at least what we can expect? And how valid are estimates right now compared to what you'll actually get come harvest time? Well, yeah, we can start taking yield estimates uh, once we get into the dough stage, um, because at that point, the number of kernels per ear is set. Basically, the two yield components in corn or any crop is how many kernels do you have and what are the weight of those kernels? 
So for corn, we would go out into the field and pick some representative ears, count the number of rows, and that would typically be 16 or maybe 18. And then we would multiply by the number of kernels per row on average, uh, excluding the uh, kernels near the tip that uh, aren't really a full kernel and, and may have aborted or have some other issues with them. So, and also maybe excluding uh, some of the kernels near the butt of the ear that um, aren't representative of a, a full kernel all the way around the cob. So typically that'd be like 16 kernels long around and about 34 kernels uh, long on the ear. So you multiply those two, then you would multiply by your final plant population, which in many cases might be around 33,000 plants per acre. And then you divide that number by the number of kernels per bushel. And the number of kernels per bushel is something that you have to kind of guess on. Um, if we have very good conditions for grain filling that would result in big kernels. Uh, that would be, you know, sufficient moisture, not too high temperatures, a long extended grain filling period. We can assume that there will only be 70,000 kernels per bushel. So those are going to be big kernels. On the other hand, if we've got droughty conditions and the crop is under stress and that grain filling period is compressed, then the number of kernels per bushel may be upwards of 85,000. So you have to kind of make an estimate here of what the uh, kernel size is and how many kernels per bushel there will be. So, you know, you could divide that that numerator number either by by the number of kernels per bushel, somewhere between around 70,000 and 85,000. And that's kind of a guess. And, you know, the difference in the yields between uh, which value you use for number of kernels per bushel can uh, cause yield swings of around the range of 50 bushels an acre. So um, it's important to think carefully about what you would use to uh, estimate, what number you would use for kernels per bushel. And it's, it's essentially a guess at this point, um, but it does give us an idea of where we're at. And I think it is helpful to know what you have for rows per year and kernels per row just, and final plant population just as a reality check for you know what is really there because that's kind of the framework for uh, what you're going to get for yield. But at the same time, it is a guess. And um, you know we really don't know for sure until the combine uh, rolls through the field. Yeah, so um, one of the things you brought up there is basically just the length of the growing season, if that gets compressed. And I hate to bring the subject up, but this is one of our uh, this is our second to last session, so we won't be covering things in fall, but we'll be thinking about frost in maybe a month here or so. And um, kind of for corn, at least, what is our main concern for temperature there where we're definitely looking at um, the die off of the crop there versus what can it tolerate to some degree there? Well, we'll still get um, some dry off and maturing of the corn kernels in there. Yeah, when the uh, air temperature gets to like 28 degrees, that's uh, really starts to shut it down. That's typically a killing frost. Um, but yeah, when we when we, also when we get these uh, nights that are unusually unusually cool, you know, in the first part of September, uh, those also help to kind of help to turn that plant to kind of shut it down a little bit to get it sensing that uh, the end of the growing season is coming. Um, I think at this point we're really not in a situation where we need to be concerned about frost. 
Uh, most of our crop is about 10 days ahead of normal, in part due to the warmer conditions during the early vegetative period, and also due to the drier conditions that just kind of accelerated the uh, maturity status of the crop. So I don't think we really need to be concerned about frost this year. Um, if we can continue to have the type of temperatures we're having now, uh, like early this week, where it's the you know highs in the low to mid 80s, and sufficient moisture, if we can extend that as long as possible and just have uh, very comfortable weather, um, that's going to help to result in um, large kernels, especially given that uh, we've had some tip dieback on the ears where we've lost some of those kernels on the tips. So there aren't as many kernels as there would be in a season where we had excellent conditions right after pollination. And therefore, I think we got good potential to fill those remaining uh, kernels quite well. Well, one last little bit about weather, but we've been talking about hail a lot this year, uh, starting in July especially, but into August here too. So there have been some folks that have gotten hail earlier on, some just last week. So what can you expect in corn at least for those that have had hail damage and they're uh, trying to work with their adjusters and trying to figure out just how much damage they're seeing? Yeah, well, the worst time to receive hail is uh, right at tasseling. Because at that point, you haven't set any kernels, you haven't filled any kernels, and all of the leaves are exposed. As we go beyond tasseling, it's still not a good time to receive hail because all of the leaves have been exposed. But at that point, the further along we get in the growing season, the better it is for the crop because um, essentially, you know, the kernel, more of the kernels have been set and they're starting to fill some. So we received some hail over the last weekend in some areas. It was quite severe. Um, you know, the good news is, is that the number of kernels were essentially set at that point or almost set completely. Um, so, but the bad news is all the leaves are exposed and there's no more leaves that are going to come out and uh, compensate for the ones that are lost or damaged. So, um, the hail that we had uh, recently could have a, a very big impact on the yield. Um, you know, the, looking at the yield reductions could vary greatly based on the amount of leaf loss and stock damage and whatnot. But, you know, losses in the 30 to 50 percent range are not uncommon uh, for the hail this time of year or greater. So, you know, that's not good. And, um then we get the stock uh, bruising that comes with it, and that can result in um, poor stock quality and lodging potential later on, which can result in down corn difficulty getting that harvest at the end of the year. Uh, for growers that are having issues with down corn, I would, and uh, where it looks like it could be really challenging with harvest, I would suggest uh, looking into some of these specialized reels or sweepers on the corn heads. Um, I know they're expensive and may be difficult to get with short notice, but um, they can really help uh, with the getting those ears um, so we have less harvest losses. Um, some other things are, you know, if for corn that was damaged by hail this time of year, some people think that would be good silage corn to use for silage if they weren't planning on it earlier, and that is true. Um, but there are a couple things that one want, might want to take into account. You know, first off, um, that silage may have a lower grain to stover ratio, um, just because the grain yield reduction may be greater than the reduction in green biomass. And um, therefore, it's probably going to have lower starch levels, lower quality, 
We could also see some mycotoxin issues potentially uh, in the ears if there were hailstones that hit on those ears and caused some bruises there and open things up. Um, and then there is also potential for uh, nitrate, um, high nitrate levels in the silage. Um, and that can happen when uh, we don't have a, a, a large ear on the plant and there's really, and the nitrates essentially accumulate in the plant because we're unable to uh, translocate as many nutrients into the ear. And that is also exasperated when we have droughty conditions um, later in the season. So that may be a concern if the drought persists, um, especially for hail damaged corn. Uh, to avoid potential issues with that, one can raise the height of the cutter bar up to like 10 to 12 inches. I know that reduces your tonnage, but it does avoid or it, it avoids harvesting that lower part of the stock, which can really accumulate the nitrates. Um, and then things to think about if you have this poor quality silage that you're trying to use is to kind of, you know, uh, dilute it with better feedstuffs so that the overall quality of the of the forage that you're feeding or the diet isn't reduced that much. So uh, a lot of things to consider, but um, yeah, I think that kind of summarizes the hail situation. Yeah, and that uh, gets into one of the questions we had coming in too that you just covered was uh, basically the silage side of it and drought to nitrogen. So yeah, that definitely helps a lot. And your other comment on just corn ears, uh, those getting bruised. I can remember a few years ago in some fields I was in, and it's sure a distinctive smell when you get in some of those fields and you can smell corn for, or the um, kernels actually fermenting out there, the ones that got bruised. So it's uh, you know, something I think people will notice if they actually did have uh, damage on that there. So again, thanks, Jeff. I know you have to run here quick. So um, yeah, it was great uh, to kind of get an overview of our, kind of our last steps here, hopefully for corn before harvest there. So with that, I think we'll switch over to uh, Dr. Seth Nave and we'll talk about what's going on with soybeans here. So um, yeah, I think it's been a variable year for our soybeans too, hasn't it? All right. Yeah, it's um, I think, you know, Jeff basically summed the year up pretty well. And, I, you know, we we the things that we talk about in corn basically follow along to soybean pretty well. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's some some nuances to it, of course. And I think uh, soybean just reacts a little bit different. It's it's seed filling period and the way the the, the plant is is built. Um, and, and what it mobilizes to the seed at the end of the year makes things a little bit different. And, and soybean is also a crop that is more photo period dependent um, than heat dependent, uh, but not entirely. So I, there's some really interesting things going on with the crop in terms of maturation and, and through the stress and drought and you add the heat into it. So there's a lot of, um, lot of interesting things happening this year for sure. Yeah, so uh, one of the questions I've had coming in uh, prior to this is just, it's the variability question with soybean. There's been some fields that just seem like the soybeans didn't take off, canopies never really quite closed, and it's also on irrigated ground in some cases, so it wasn't just the drought. And um, have you heard many reports of that or kind of speculation on what might be causing those kind of failure to perform soybeans, there's not obvious disease or high drought uh, stress situations. Yeah, I've gotten, I've have, I've had more questions this year about just odd, poor development and ugly soybeans than I've ever had in any year um, previous. So that's, and I've been here 25 years or so. So it's, 
it's been a really interesting year. And of course, it's easy for me just to, to blame the drought universally. Um, you know, but when we do have those fields that are irrigated, um, you know, it really, it, 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 it shows my ignorance pretty clearly, um, that, that these things aren't all related to soil moisture, but I think definitely we had an, the, the year that we had this year with, with quite a bit of water early and then drought hitting right away, right after planting was, was kind of a perfect storm for us to really, it really, um, uh, exposed a lot of our weaknesses in terms of fertility, in terms of, um, you know, early soil, soybean development, um, no-till soybeans looked really crappy this year. We had really poor development in no-till soybeans, even though theoretically we should have maintained some soil moisture there longer. They still didn't look good. Um, you know, and there's lots of streaky fields that, that farmers are relating back to some sort of nutrient application in previous years. Um, we can see some things lining up, but yet, um, the soybeans weren't able to, to, you know, capture anything from some new fertilizers in some cases. So, and IDC, of course, so lots of early season problems. Uh, the, the one that's really interesting to me recently, and I, I know I'm not giving you any, um, good advice on these things, except for that. I, I do think that there was a lot going on this year in terms of rooting. Um, I really look at this thing relative to where those active roots are or, or um, where the roots are active in the soil relative to soil moisture. And I think we just had a different strata in the soil or profile in the soil. We, we had roots chasing that moisture down into the soil. We didn't get any of that replenishing rain that we normally have at the top and that we, we were just pushing those roots down deeper in the soil. And I think, I think we have some stratification of some of our nutrients. You put that together with lack of mineralization in some of those zones uh, where the roots were, we might have some water, but not enough to really mineralize any nutri nutrients. And I think it caused us some problems or exposed some issues that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, yeah, 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 go ahead. Before, you go ahead. I, otherwise, I'll just ramble for the next hour. Yeah, no, so that's it. Sometimes we're just speculating on what might happen, and it's hard to figure out sometimes. But um, that kind of does get into the same question I posed to Jeff is, you know, when we do yield estimates for soybean, um, you want to walk folks through how you do that. And again, how reliable are those estimates when it comes time to seeing what's in the hopper? Sure, I'll, I'll walk people through my recommendations for for estimating yields and soybeans by just telling them not to do it. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's all, uh, you know, these folks that are out there estimating yields are really, um, they claim there's a lot of science behind this, but what they do is they count a lot of pods, uh, and then they adjust by what they, it, it's the same thing that Jeff recommended for corn. Exactly. It's a little bit more complicated because we don't have ears and we have larger number of plants. And so it's not, it's not quite as clean for estimating uh, yields. It's not, not quite as easy to estimate yields in soybeans or seed number, I should say. It's not as easy to estimate seed number on an acre basis in soybean. But then these folks that go out and estimate yields, they basically apply a fudge factor that says, well, we're going to have larger or smaller seeds at the end of the year. And that fudge factor is what's creating the yield out there. That's what's, that's what's giving them above or below trend line yields. And that's all the stuff that we can see ourselves by looking at these fields. Do we have good canopy? Do we have nice tall plants? 
do we have good soil moisture? What's the 10, 14, uh, 30 day forecast? Those are the things that are going to create seed size for us. And you don't have to count seed in order to know what we've got. Soybean has an amazing capacity to increase seed size. Uh, I'm sure farmers have seen soybeans that have come from fields where the, the seed coats actually split. So we can have, we can have the soybeans that actually grow so much at the end of the year that they split out of their seed coats. Um, we can add at least 25% to our yield by just increasing seed size at the end. Seed, and I'm I'm working with my crew this year, and we're we're really, I'm really hell bent on determining um, or exposing this idea that seed that soybean yields can be seed limited, seed number limited. And, and identify where those are occurring. I don't think that occurs very often in fields. Uh, we're almost always limited by seed size because we just aren't able to put on enough at the end of the year. So if we have perfect conditions, we can, you know, it's just like everybody says, you know, August makes beans. It's absolutely true. Um, we did take the top off of our yield, um, um, the potential yields out there because we don't have really good tall soybeans with good canopy closure. We did not capture all of the light necessary throughout the year to build that machine to now put that into place to, to manufacture those beans here at the end. So we don't have, we're not going to be above trend line on these yields, but we have an opportunity to have really, really good yields out there if things continue. And again, I'm rambling, but the caveat here is, is that we're seeing some weird things relative to maturation. Um, and I mentioned that soybeans are, are photoperiod dependent and that, that affects, you know, the, the, the maturity of the soybeans, but I'm getting some calls on some soybeans that are starting, starting to yellow up. Mostly I would say that that's probably a combination of stress and heat. Uh, and again, it's probably just cause I don't really know what it is. And that's, that's my best guess. Um, but the heat is definitely pushing soybeans. We, we know we can look at the crop reports, the, the weekly crop reports, and we can see that soybeans have, have more than caught up for any, any uh, delay that they had early on. Um, so the heat is definitely pushing them. The problem is, is if it pushes them through maturity and we have a quick seed filling and things end up earlier than we would like out there and match mature early because we have really high temperatures. And it sounds like we've got really warm temperatures coming next week that could add to this, that could really reduce our, our yield potential. So even with good water, if, if the heat really pushes these things to maturity, we're, we're in a bit of a bind. And the only thing that might save us at that point is some really long maturing maturity soybeans that some farmers have been, been pushing the maturity envelope a little bit. And they may actually come out the other side on a year like this a little bit better. So anyway, sure. a lot um, there. Maybe you could slice and dice that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The uh, last question I have for you is kind of same I asked Jeff too. But uh, yeah, what about hail scenarios? And when growers are working with their adjusters, what should they expect? Um, whether it was the last hailstorm we just got, or um, in case with our family's farm, it was back in July we got hail. And Jeff said, "Oh, I'm going to wait till August, and we'll come back out later and see how things look." Well, it's, it's the same way that I, you know, same follows the same theory that I did with, you know, yield estimations and soybeans is we really don't, it's really difficult for us to predict. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of hail studies and we know what that does to the crop. And it is, I think, a, a nice contrast or caveat relative to Jeff uh, and, and the timing is that 
Soybean, this is absolutely the, the most critical time for leaf removal in soybeans, right at R5.5. That's 5.5 is when we have, it's easy to see in the field. It's basically when those last little leaflets appear at the very top of the plant, kind of at this terminal raceme at the top of the plant. When we've got a bunch of little leaflets and then maybe hopefully a few uh, pods starting to show up at the very top of the plant. That's our 5.5 when the soybean quits developing any new leaf area. So it's halfway between beginning seed and full seed, which is R5 and R6. So R5.5. And so this is the period that's most sensitive to hail. And so study after study have demonstrated that, you know, if if you remove 100% of the leaves at this period and, and you just leave the stems out there, we, we have about a 75% yield loss. But if we go down to about 50% um, defoliation, we can still uh, get by with about 80% of our yield potential. So there's still a lot of potential to come um, about. Um, there's a lot of yield to occur and accrue, I should say, uh, from here on out. So there's a lot of opportunity to rebound. But on the other hand, this is the most sensitive time. So this is the time when soybeans are, are, are most affected because it both removes that machine that's going to be utilized later for photosynthesis and create that seed. But also those leaves are really rich resources of, of protein that would be translocated to the seed late in the season. So uh, we lose both a storage uh, unit of yield as well as um, actual that machinery to make the yield. And I would just pile on by saying that I think a lot of us forget that, that, that a lot of that yield uh, in soybean is actually in those leaves. And so that I call that um, yield in the bank. Uh, so as long as we can maintain those leaves uh, and the bigger canopy that we've got, uh, that's yield that we've already uh, is right there. And all we needed all we need to do is help that plant move that yield from the leaves stored in the leaves into the seed. And we've got a significant yield there uh, at the end. Yeah, one last question uh, related to that. I had been getting calls too, where um, people got hail earlier on their beans, and you know leaves look pretty beat up. But you know, a few weeks later, then they're starting to turn yellow. It looks like localized disease. And um, is that something we are concerned about over the whole plant, or is it just going to be a rough-looking plant where just those leaves that got hit by the hail are just going to not look as good? I think the latter for sure. Um, I'm not really overly concerned about, you know, disease and those things. I think that the soybeans able to pretty much wall off those injuries for the most part. If they are seeing excessive yellowing, I kind of push this back into that old camp of just a stressful year and, and, and issues, um, nutrition related issues and other things. So plants a little short on energy. So it's, it's not sending a bunch of, uh, it's actually pulling a lot of resources that would nor normally go to the roots. And so it's, it's trying to put a few leaves back on the top of that plant for these earlier hailstorms. So we, we could be in a nutritional deficit in those areas just because we're not able to tap into the right nutrition at the right time to help support that new leaf development. So it's, I think it's, I think a lot of this is a, is a complex, it's all somewhat intertwined uh, that we're seeing this year, but uh, I'm sure field by field are, are, are different nuances of those same kinds of things. All right. Well, thank you again, Seth, for joining us on the soybean end of things. And we want to, again, thank everyone for attending this University of Minnesota Extension Field Notes program today. We also want to thank our sponsors, 
uh, Minnesota Soybean Research Motion Council and Minnesota Corn Research Motion Council. And again, there'll be that quick survey when you log off today. And next week, we will be covering grain marketing. So we're definitely getting into kind of the harvest theme a little bit and uh, what to expect for the rest of the year, pretty much in terms of what we might see with markets. And then maybe another topic to be decided, possibly looking more at uh, grain storage and equipment there. So uh, with that, have a great rest of the day, everyone. And we'll see you next week. And again, thank you, Seth and Jeff Coulter for um, being on talking about the agronomy side of things today. Have a good morning, everyone.